Welcome to Podland, the last word in podcasting news. It's the 2nd of December 2021. I'm James Cridland, the editor of podnews.net in Australia. And I'm Sam Sethi, the MD of River Radio here in the UK. I'm Winslow Bright from Premier Music Group. And later, I'll talk about music licensing and the new Paul Simon autobiography, Miracle and Wonder. They will. Podland is sponsored by Buzzsprout, used by over 105,000 active podcasters to host, promote and track your podcast. Podland is a weekly podcast where James and I delve deeper into the week's podcasting news. And the big news this week is it's the shiny award season, James. It seems everyone's got a bauble. Yeah, Isn't it if just? You, Have you got a bauble? No, you've got baubles, haven't you? You've got webby baubles. Yeah, I've got two of them, actually. Sam, I don't know whether I've ever mentioned this before. <laughs> Uh, it's a passing moment I think you have now Apple Podcasts they announced the best of 2021 uh, and who did they announce James what was the big highlight for 2021 for us all well, they announced loads of things, but the uh, the big ones are a slight change of plans with Mayor Shankar from Pushkin Industries was chosen as best show of the year. And um, newcomer of the year went to Anything for Selena, which is WBUR and Futuro. Um, there's a list of top new shows and top subscriptions available in the app as well. And obviously those lists are different depending on which country you're in. Well, I did have to look those up because they're not on my podcast listening app um, but I do feel now underwhelmed in the sense of my abilities. Maya Shanker was the White House behavioral science team expert and she also worked for the United Nations so not somebody who's a lightweight then who's just turned up with a podcast. No, <laughs> no indeed. So uh, yeah no there are, there are some um, really good names in there and what the chart also gives us, actually, is some understanding of how Apple Podcasts paid subscriptions are doing, because number one in the list is Bad Blood, the final chapter. Now, in September, they said they had 6,000 subscribers, which equates to about 16 grand a month in terms of US dollars after Apple's cut. So um, I wonder how many new people they've added since September. And I also wonder when these charts were compiled. But those are the sorts of numbers that we're seeing at the top of Apple Podcasts paid subscriptions. So not an awful lot of cash, if that's the case. No, but I'm sure that after these awards, that number will shoot up dramatically. Yeah, no, indeed. One one would certainly hope so. Although, interesting to note that uh, today, both Pushkin um, and Slate have both announced that uh, they are now making their paid subscriptions available in Spotify as well. Um, and both of them talking about, we want people on other platforms to be able to enjoy our paid um, shows. So um, perhaps... Uh, Apple's, you know, not being on Android is uh, coming to bite them. That's your bet, isn't it, for the year that they will release a Android client? How you doing? <laughs> I think I'm running out of time, <laughs> but we'll see what happens. Uh, down your way, the Australian Podcast Award winners will be announced today uh, in a live ceremony in Sydney. Uh, you won't be there, of course. Will you be watching? Yes, I'm looking forward to the Australian Podcast Awards. Uh, they are tonight as we record this. So I only know who's won one of the awards, and that's the one that I ended up giving away a couple of days ago on video. 
Uh, so we'll find out what happens there. I would dearly have liked to have been in Sydney. By the way, so would Matt Deegan uh, as well, would like to have been in Sydney. But there's always next year. Yes. Uh, and also there's going to be the big Acast, the podcast of the year announcement as well. So there'll be a gold winner, I guess. There will be in terms of Australia, which is always good. And also the winners of the Australian Commercial Radio Awards were announced. There were three, I think, podcast categories. There might have been four in there. Uh, the best original podcast, which is the one that the uh, Commercial Radio Australia highlighted, went to Zero Waste Baby. Uh, which is a mothering podcast with Veronica Milsom, produced by um, Southern Cross Australia's listener. Uh, so uh, lots of gongs there, and gongs in your part of the woods as well. Yeah, the 2021 Audio Production Awards took place. The production company of the year was won by Listen Entertainment, uh, and in the show notes we'll have a link to all the winners as well. Indeed, and also the Rachel Bland New Podcast Award from Radio 5 Live was awarded this year to You're Not My Mum, the Stepmums side. Um, it's a really good award that uh, Radio 5 Live do. It's named after the newsreader and presenter uh, Rachel Bland, who died of cancer in 2018, and she recorded a podcast which was all about that. So um, probably worth a listen, Katie Harrison's podcast, You're Not My Mum, The Stepmum's Side. Now, moving forward, it seems there's data data everywhere again. Uh, Edison Research's Infinite Dial is coming to the UK. What is the Infinite Dial? It sounds like a Doctor Who series. <laughs> Well, the infinite dial is actually the data that um, all of the podcast companies use. It's that um, overarching number of how many people listen to podcasts every week or every month. And what's brilliant about it is that it's produced in the US, it's produced in Canada, it's produced in Australia, it's been produced in the past in Germany and in uh, South Africa as well. And it's deliberately produced to be um, to be, uh, ed um, what's the phrase? It's deliberately produced to be comparable uh, in between different countries as well. So unlike the radar data that we have in the UK or that you have in the UK, um, this is uh, comparable information. So quite useful from that point of view. Again, that is today as we record this. Um, you'll probably already see the results in uh, Pod News uh, in the next um, in the next day or so. The latest share of ear study which again is from Edison Research, suggests that more than a quarter of all Americans aged 18 to 34 are listening to podcasts every day. Now that's surprising, James, because we didn't think sub 25 year olds were interested in podcasting well i think sub 25 year olds are kind of interested in podcasting but certainly um looking at that that's a daily figure which i don't think we've seen before um this is um it's a little bit annoying because share of ear is a great study that edison research releases every quarter but they don't release it and the only way of knowing what's in there is to um hope that some of their uh, customers uh, end up releasing some of the data. Thank you to Pierre Bouvard, friend of the show from uh, Accumulus Media, for uh, telling us some of those um, those pieces of information. What Sherevere uh, essentially tells you is what everybody listens to in uh, you know in their audio, in their ears, in their headphones, in their uh, speakers, in their cars, you know whatever it might be, and it shows how podcasts fit in with the rest of media consumption. So things like like, um, you know, radio consumption and Spotify uh, music and, uh, and everything else. So, again, fascinating data. 
And it's the sort of data that uh, if you ever see me talking about the future of radio, then uh, it's the sort of data that I lean on quite heavily because it's so useful in terms of that. Now, would it be that younger people are turning to podcasting? Because one of the things that the Rajar uh, data that came out in October here in the UK showed was that the music radio stations in the UK, certainly Radio 1, uh, Radio 6, were seeing a drop in the number of listeners. Um, and when I talk to my 17-year-old about what she does, she's not a radio listener. She's certainly on Spotify with a playlist or TikTok with her friends. And it's because all the music they listen to, sadly, uh, cannot be played on the radio. Is it maybe podcasting hasn't got that censorship and they can find stuff that is actually more aligned to what they think and feel these days? Yeah, I don't know how much of it is to do with saucy language and um, and heffing and jeffing. Um, but I do think that um, if we think about radio as being a thing to um, deliver music, which we used to think of radio as being in the past, certainly, you know, 20 years or so ago, radio was the predominant way that people found new music. Now, of course, it's YouTube and it's TikTok and it's um, Facebook and it's, you know, everything else. So really, you know, if you're a music radio station and the thing that you do is play 10 great songs in a row, well, good luck to you because, um, I mean, that might be working for you now, but it won't be working for you, I don't think, in five or 10 years' time. And it was yet more Edison Research data that was showing the amount of speech that is consumed, um, particularly by young people, has really significantly increased as well. I mean, I think, you know, overall, we're listening to less music than we ever have. um, But that's sort of one side. But I think also, you know, music is just not a thing that radio does over everybody else now. Perhaps that used to be in the olden days, but certainly isn't now. So I think that there's, uh, you know, change afoot uh, in terms of that. Yeah, there is. Now, talking about music and being able to play music online, inside your podcasts, people always ask, how can you license music for your intro and outro? You caught up with somebody who knows a lot about this, James, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So um, one of the most popular pages on Pod News is a page which is, how can I play commercial music on my podcast? And it's basically a 12-minute Uh, article which says the word no in lots of entertaining ways. (laughs) No, you can't. No, you can't use it in terms of fair use, probably. No, you can't use it in terms of, you know, just playing 30 seconds, all that kind of stuff. Um, But um, there are some podcasts out there who are very good at licensing music. And you'd have thought that it would be really easy and simple if you listen to people, but it really isn't. Um, Clearing the music for Paul Simon's audio biography, Miracle and Wonder, Conversations with Paul Simon, which is out now, was not very easy, it turns out. Winslow Bright spearheaded the licensing and music supervision. She cleared over 67 songs over eight months for a five-hour audiobook recorded in nine sessions, and she works for Premier Music Group. Premier Music Group is a music supervision company. We specialize in music for advertising, film and TV, and podcasts. We work with various agencies, we work with directors, we work with production companies, film studios, and then anyone which is many people creating podcasts these days. (laughs) So let's focus on this Paul Simon audio biography. It's called Miracle and Wonder. It's a five-hour audio book, 67 songs in it. You spent eight months clearing those songs. That seems a large chunk of time 
for this. So can we just go back to basics first of all? If I have a podcast... Yes. Um, I have read on the internet that I can just <laughs> use up to 30 seconds of any song and that's just fine and nobody will complain. Is that true? Who on the internet said that? <laughs> that's not true. That's definitely not true. I am certainly not a specialist when it comes to fair use. I, I, I push everyone if they have a fair use argument towards lawyers who specialize in that. But when it comes to using music in a podcast, generally speaking, unless they're unless a lawyer that you work with can specifically say a reason that a a song can be deemed or considered fair use, um, or that that's a stance that you can be willing and comfortable to stand behind. Without that, the music should always be licensed. Unless even if that's a gratis license, even if that's an agreement with the owners and artists that there is no fee, but it's understood that the artist has signed off on the use. Yeah, well, we'll come back to those in a minute. But uh, so really, you do always need to ask permission. And there are at least two sets of people, aren't there, that you need to ask for permission? Music publishers and the record company, if I got that about right? Yep, that's correct. Um, And sometimes there can be multiple publishers on a song. So generally speaking, there's often one record label. Sometimes if there's two artists think of two contemporary modern artists now make a song together oftentimes both of their record labels own 50 percent of that it's a split but generally speaking there's often one record label involved and then there can be multiple publishers depending on how many songwriters are on the song oh right so how do i find out the publishers and the record company it's, it, it must be obvious just looking at the cd but there are no such things as cds anymore are there <laughs> Yeah, well, nowadays, I do feel like it's much easier than it used to be. You can oftentimes go on the Performing Rights Society's websites like BMI or ASCAP, CSAC. PRS is the UK equivalent, so every country has their own equivalent. But um, you can go on BMI or, or ASCAP, for example, and type in the name of the song. And their databases are getting better every day. Generally speaking, you can find the writer info there. Um, if it's something that's more obscure or older, or maybe the rights have changed over and that's not up to date, that definitely can require some sleuthing um, and some detective work. We certainly pride ourselves on being great detectives at our company, as we often can't really just stop at, no, we can't find this information. We have to always you know, continue to see it through. So you find publisher, probably more than one, record companies, normally one, but probably more than one. Uh, in terms of the Paul Simon work, I'm guessing it was relatively easy. Has he been with the same record company and the same publisher all the way through? So he actually just sold his publishing rights to Sony, a very big deal that he did with, with Sony ATV. Uh, for his entire publishing catalog. But that happened really this year, and that goes into effect in the new year. So it was interesting coming on when we did because we're sort of in the middle of this transition. And then as far as his master recording, almost all of his master recordings and I would say majority of the master recordings that we used for this project were all with Sony on the master side as well. There are several songs where it's a collaboration or where there's a co-writer or something like that. I mean, he really did write most of his work, but there are several instances where it required other approval rights. With such a big artist and 
with someone who has such a robust catalog and where we're licensing so many songs, um, I would say on both the publishing and the master side, there were definitely, even though it was just going to two parties in that case, Sony TV and Sony Music Entertainment, there were a lot of layers internally that we had to work through and aligning on fees and aligning on terms and rights and all of that. And, um, making sure everyone internally at both of those companies were approving what we were requesting or, you know, that, that we were managing all expectations, um, with both our client and then, you know, with the various layers of approvals at the publisher and label. So talking, uh, generally, because you clearly can't talk about this particular, uh, client, how are the costs worked out for this mm-hmm. sort of thing? And, and I'm really thinking here around podcasting, but obviously audiobooks are, I guess, going to be a little bit different too. It all comes down to, how long a project is going to live online, where it's going to live, you know, the various terms that you're requesting. So if you're requesting something for one year, that might have one set of costs. Whereas if you request something for five years or in perpetuity or 10 years, then those fees often change. That's sort of, I would say the biggest variable. Um, With major labels, there's oftentimes a, a bit of a threshold, I would say, in terms of what they're willing to consider, even if you're saying, okay, well, we actually want to only license something for two months or six months. Like, even if you limit the terms significantly, there does kind of come an admin piece with that. And and also they want to make sure that they're paying their artists appropriately. The, the I would say the term is the biggest factor in, in fee. But generally speaking, like, even if you start to limit the terms, there is sort of a threshold when you're working with some of these major labels and major publishers. And then, of course, you've got the issue that a podcast is available for free, uh, typically, and uh, available without any rights management on there as well. Mm -hmm. So are the things that you also have to agree in terms of I will only use 45 seconds of this track or I will use the the instrumental rather than the sung version or or that sort of thing? Yeah, so... With any use that we do, whether it's a um, whether it's a movie or an advertisement or a podcast, we always have to specify how the song is being used. So, whether it's the instrumental version, lyrical version, what either the sort of scene description is or the context of the use. If it's um, Ariana Grande is going to be on the episode and this is her intro, and so a song of hers plays underneath that, or whether it's John Legend is talking about Marvin gay and and they play a clip of gotta give it up for context of you know the way that he's describing his vocals or something like that every use is is different and generally speaking the rights holders and the artists and the writers or the estates of those parties want to know the actual context of the use um something could be approved for one type of use and under one consideration whereas it could be denied if the estate of someone didn't like the way that it was portrayed or discussed or something like that. So we always have to provide all of that info, um, the length of the use, the type of use, the scene description, and then, like I said, the, the term and 
whether it's one year or five years or six months, and then where it's going to live. Is it living only on Apple Podcasts or is it on every podcast platform? Is there a podcast platform that, or is it available on the website of the podcast? Um, Is it being used on Instagram for social teasers? Like all of those are things that we have to negotiate when we go to clear the rights for the music. This is not sounding easy so far. (laughs) I can see why you spent eight months uh, doing all of this work. Um, (laughs) When I used to buy music a long, long time ago, now, of course, I just use uh, YouTube Music or Spotify, the same Mm -hmm. as everybody else does. But when I used to go and buy music, I remember finding an excellent uh, record store in my hometown, which sold grey imports. So instead of buying Michael Jackson's Thriller for, you know, £6 for the cassette, uh, I ended up buying Michael Jackson's Thriller for £3 for the cassette, but it happens to be published by, I think the record label was Epic Greece. (laughs) And everything was in the Greek language. But nevertheless, it was the same recording. I'm wondering how this works internationally as well. I mean, clearly, Mm -hmm. this audio book, I'm guessing, is going to be made available in more than just the US. But clearly, podcasts are international in in uh, scope what's the deal there yeah so it all depends on how the rights are, are distributed internationally i would say like with michael jackson's thriller that was definitely probably a bootleg and they did not own that they just they just sure. made a, you know <laughs> that was just a um bootleg like re- like copy when we're figuring out who owns the rights to something we're always going to the original source and figuring out if this recording was released in 1959 on this record label, who owns that record label now? Who would the rights Mm. now be owned by based on the series of purchases and acquisitions and all of these things? And that goes for the publishing too. It's really, you know, who retains the rights now to the original master because that's what you're, you're licensing and any replica would need, unless it's a re-record and that's a new version, you know, if I did a cover of um, All You Need Is Love, like my version I would own from the master recording, but the Beatles own their, you know, their master and then they own the publishing, right? So, mm. but if it's just, you know, I somehow release a, a compilation album and All You Need Is Love by the Beatles happens to be on it, like I don't own that master recording. It's the original, you know, the original master recording is still owned by whomever released that that version. So it's, it is a lot of detective work in sort, in sort of figuring out who currently owns the rights. And then also, you know, generally speaking, when we reach out to our contacts at the labels and the publishers, they can tell you what they actually control. I mean, I was working with somebody today and they said, you know, we control 50% of this recording in the US. And I wrote back and I said, the other publisher who's listed on this song confirmed that if this if this is an instrumental only use, then they don't have the rights. So I believe that you actually control 100% in the US. And they wrote back and they said, oh, okay, in that case, we do control 100% in the US, but globally, we control only 50%. And I said, that's fine. My use is only US. So I don't even I don't need those global rights. So, right. you know, it, it, there are oftentimes territory splits because especially with older recordings, their pieces were sold off and different pieces were bought. I mean, you still, you know, tons of labels and mm. publishers are selling off pieces or buying catalogs and all of that. And some people don't even know what they own. There's so much music out there. So a lot of it, you know, we oftentimes have to go to people and say, I know you have this. I know you own this. Help me help you. One of the things that podcasting has an interesting 
uh, has an interesting relationship with is, you know, download numbers aren't necessarily the same as play numbers, you know, aren't necessarily the same as the total amount of listeners who heard it. What sort of information do the, uh, do, do the uh, music rights holders want to know in terms of usage? Is it, you know, this, this got 200,000 downloads or, or what, what's the deal there? In the film and TV space, we have to oftentimes advise what the total budget is for a film, what the music budget is, or what the percentage is um, of the budget that's going towards music. So these are questions that we get asked all the time on other projects that I feel like it will make sense eventually for podcasts to move into that kind of space um, to have licensing fees be partially, I guess, determined based on the number of downloads or the, the ad revenue and all of these different things. I think the business has certainly boomed in the last few years, but given how democratic the platform is, that doesn't necessarily mean that every podcast is making the same amount of money or has the same amount of revenue or spends the same amount on production, right? So not every um, label and publisher is asking for that information right now, but I can definitely see, and frankly, not every podcast wants to supply that information or can supply that information, but I can see a world where maybe that information is exchanged more in order to help determine more appropriate numbers um, mm. when it comes to licensing. So if you were able to um, get direct links into podcast hosting companies to to get the numbers directly, uh, that would potentially be a help in terms of at least reporting back to the record companies and the publishers of how much, uh, how much usage something is getting. Potentially, yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking like if you have a brand new podcast that you're launching and you just don't know how it's going to do, that might be something that, okay, season one, these are the, the rates that you go for, but, you know, you have to provide all of the data, or maybe not even, see, you know, the first few episodes you agree to a certain rate, but after a while you have to provide certain data. I will say that the costs can be obviously variable, variable depending on the song, depending on the rights holders, and again, depending on the term. But sometimes I do wonder if it would be helpful to have a better insight into what the ad revenue is like, and then also what the percentage is in terms of the total production costs, and then what what the licensing fees are, you know, from a percentage perspective, just to see, like, do these fees feel fair based on the usage or do they feel so distant and out of sort of, yeah, yeah, you know, out of out of line with the rest of the project? Yeah, as I as I would imagine that there's a big difference between someone that just would like to use 30 seconds of ACDC's Back in Black at the beginning of their podcast and someone who is making a, you know, tremendously, um, uh, you know, enriched eight-hour uh, audiobook, um, you know, about about something right. else. You know, I, I'm sure that there are plenty of podcasters out there who would be perfectly happy to spend two hundred and fifty dollars on on a little on a little bit of of uh, music, yeah. but I'm not necessarily sure it works that way. <laughs> not not quite yet. Yeah. Well, and there's also obviously, you, you know, every artist has the right to consider how their music is used and how it's synchronized. So, you know, you do have to 
the the artists have to have that approval and um they have every right to say well i don't want my music in that you know in that opening of that podcast like whatever it may be but at the same time like i mean more so in the fact that indie films when you go to license music those those licenses are priced differently than the newest james bond movie yeah you know like they're (laughs) they're the funding and the overall budget like those are things that are considered and granted those uses can be any use can be denied right Mm. um Mm. whether it's because of the fees or the creative or um the context whatever it may be but it is something that I think about a lot just in terms of the the variable scale. Yeah, sure. And on the artist, uh, one last question. If I've gone and, and interviewed a band and the band says, sure, you can use my new track in your podcast, do they actually have the rights themselves to say that? Such a good, great question. Um, nine times out of ten, I would say no. <laughs> um they don't have the sole right oftentimes. So mm. generally, I would say there's, you know, if they're commercially releasing music, then it's probably something to consider that they would be signed to a record label and then potentially have a publishing deal in place. So if you and I are in a band together and we're both signed to different publishers, that's two publishers, and then we have our label that you know technically owns the master recording. Now, they come to us for approval rights because we are the creators of the song, but we do not have the sole right to grant you know, the use of the project. There's a reason why somebody has signed a contract with a record company, right? Right, 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 and you know, we might say, oh, that's fine, include it for free. Whereas our label might be like, um, no, the going rate for this is mm. X amount. And even just to admit it, it requires X amount. And, you know, we we don't want to, um, you know, we don't, we don't want to do it for less. Now, obviously, like it helps to have the blessing of the band, but technically the kind of next step there would be to reach out to the label and say, you know, we have the blessing of the band and here the band is on on copy or, or here's the correspondence from the band or whatever it may be. So your advice would be, if somebody wanted to make a music documentary, your your advice would be, well, call Premier Music Group and we'll help you, I guess. But it, it certainly sounds as if it's going to be a bit more complicated than originally thought. Yeah, I mean, my, my colleagues worked on Summer of Soul and... They worked, you know, very, very closely with Questlove and they worked very closely with all of the various rights holders and everything. But, you know, all of that required approvals. That's a that's a visual documentary. And even with Paul Simon, I mean, he's a creator really of this project. You know, he and Malcolm and Bruce all speak very closely together. And even so, we had to go through all of the proper channels to get all of the rights to all of the songs included, whether they were his songs or other people's songs, because again, he has a record label that owns those rights. And then he has publishing companies that also own those rights. Of course, it it helps to be able to say he's obviously very closely, he's beyond closely involved in the project. You know, that's like a whole other step. If you're asking someone to be involved or if you have a project that you're trying to do, Um, without someone's involvement and it's just about them like that obviously can be much more complicated but I would say generally speaking unless somebody owns all of the rights 
to their own music outright, then you you do still have to work through those channels. Having them involved can be super helpful and they can also be extremely knowledgeable when you're working through decades of music as with Paul's music, we were, you know, he's been recording music for a very, very long time. Um, so we were able to work closely with his management and work through some songs where we weren't sure who had the rights to certain recordings or who had approval rights. So obviously they were extremely supportive and helpful in that way, but we did still have to like go through all the proper channels, which is why it took eight months. Sure. Well, Winslow Bright spearheaded the licensing and music supervision of Miracle and Wonder Conversations with Paul Simon. It's out now from all good audiobook stores. Is that what you say these days? I don't know. I don't understand this. Uh, I think we'll that s- works for me. Yeah, I think that works. Uh, Winslow, thank <laughs> you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Great chatting with you. So, Winslow Bright, there you go. And hopefully one day, James, it'll be a lot easier than the time that she took. Eight months to clear. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Hopefully it will be. But I think we understand now how complicated it is. I mean, and that was clearing something for the artist's own audiobiography. So imagine how complicated it must be if you're clearing something where the artist isn't involved. So absolutely fascinating stuff. And I think it reminds me of um, going to Podcast Movement uh, two or three years ago and hearing some very breathless announcements talking about um, music licensing being sorted for podcasts. And we're still waiting for that. It's still not really happening. And uh, I think we can understand why. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Winslow, um, for doing that if you want to support her and her work then go and buy the audio biography from paul simon miracle and wonder conversations with paul simon now facebook they they don't allow you to pirate music that's the one thing actually i have found is that apple and spotify if you put music into your podcast they don't stop you Um, there's no one seemingly tracking it maybe there is and they just don't care but facebook they police from facebook copyright office certainly are tracking what you do because if you put your podcast up with any music in uh, they will certainly stop it and take it down Um, but Facebook is growing now James if you got your podcast up onto Facebook already haven't you yes so pod news itself is available on facebook you can have a listen but you need to be doing two things firstly you need to be on ios because as far as i'm aware it's still not available on android but secondly you need to be based in the us so for the rest for the other 96.5 percent of the population tough but what i think is really fascinating about facebook is that um, the amount of people consuming podcasts on facebook is really increasing So Tom Webster from Edison Research, again, um, reported that um, the data from the last quarter, quarter 321, showed that 20% of people in the US had listened to a podcast on Facebook. The same data three months earlier was just 8%. So more than doubled. And it seems to be doing really well. So if you're not on Facebook, anyone can add a podcast onto Facebook. Um, It takes a couple of minutes. It's relatively easy, relatively simple and straightforward. Um, You can listen if it's your own podcast. uh, And everybody can listen if you're in the US on uh, iOS. So it's well worth doing. Yeah, there was further reports, though, that you were talking about. Rains Bradhill reviews Facebook podcasts. So Tom's saying that, you know, there's an increase in listening on Facebook. 
but Rains Bradhill, uh, when you read their report, says, in summary, clearly Facebook's not ready for prime time. So who's right? Well, I think Brad Hill is probably right that it's not a great experience. Um, you know, I mean, podcasts, for example, are in a navigational section called Watch, which is confusing, he says. Correct. It is really confusing to press something called Watch to listen to something. Um, you know, it's got a bunch of, uh, of interesting things in there. But again, you know, Brad, who's, um, who's a great guy I've known for many, many years, he looks into um, how the system works and he's just not particularly impressed in terms of um, how the system works. Yes, comments are supported in every podcast episode, he says. Um, it uses rather confusing follow and subscribe buttons, which kind of do different things. And why would you have a subscribe button as well as a follow button? That kind of makes very little point. Um, and also, he says that uh, Facebook has basically hidden podcasting at the moment. It's uh, hidden way out of sight, practically guaranteeing that few will find it. So Brad isn't a particular fan of it. Um, and uh, certainly the numbers, the download numbers that I'm seeing so far are not particularly high. But it may well be that it's the same as Spotify to a degree and certainly Amazon podcasts in terms of it might be a place to get podcasts in front of people that don't listen to podcasts and then perhaps they then um, migrate over to using a decent podcast app. So perhaps that's how it's going to work. It'd be nice if they turn it on outside the US as well. That'll be helpful. Yeah, wouldn't it? And I don't understand. I simply do not understand why Facebook, why Meta are not turning it on outside of the US. There's no legal reason to do that. Um, you know, I mean, even if you just turn it on and there may be a language translation conversation, but even if you just turn it on for um, people using an, an English device, then that would kind of work. I don't really understand why Facebook are dragging their heels in terms of that. Yeah, uh, one person, though, did see an interesting feature coming to Facebook. Uh, subscriptions to podcasts may be coming to Facebook. Eagle-eyed tweeter Stephen Robles has spotted a subscribe button, which is what you were saying earlier. And again, if you, mm. I, I did read the report from Brad Hill. Um, it seems that the follow button is for the page that you're on right. and the subscribe is for the podcast that you want to subscribe to. Oh, okay. Uh, Whereas, of course, on Apple, follow is for the podcast. Yes. And subscribe is if you want to pay. Yes. <laughs> this isn't going to get confusing at all, is it? <laughs> well, it, w it won't if went once Facebook turn on the money-making part of it, then they'll follow Apple, I'm sure, in their... Uh, naming convention. Yeah, no, indeed. None of that makes any sense. Now, moving on. The BBC plans to monetize its podcast as well. Uh, we had some analysis from Dan Barnett, um, and he looked at what the BBC is doing beyond the shores of the UK. What was he thinking? To yeah, so he's been looking at uh, how the BBC is um, uh, trying to make money out of its podcasts, why they have to make money, what they're doing to make money, and so on and so forth. He says that they're in a weird place. Um, where it needs a certain level of success to justify its existence, but too much success would result in other content providers complaining that it's abusing its position. He's got that dead right from the couple of years that I worked at the BBC. Uh, it's really difficult to try and work out exactly what's going on there. It's, it's difficult that you can't be very successful because then people shout at you. Um, but uh, if you're not quite successful 
enough, um, then people say that it's bad value for money and it's just really hard. You're in a no-win situation if you work there. And as an example of that, John Ronson today has apologised to audiences who are unable to hear his BBC podcast. Um, He's uh, said on Twitter, it'll be freely and easily available in the new year. And he's very embarrassed at the fact that uh, quite a lot of his audience is is being geo-locked out. It's on BBC Sounds in the UK only. It's called Things Fell Apart. It's promoted on BBC Sounds across the world, but the play button doesn't work. Genius. Well done, BBC. Another triumph. And on Apple Podcasts, it's available as a paid subscription but in the US only. And again, there is absolutely no reason why that should be the case. They've got the global rights. Of course, they've got the global rights. Why on earth are they doing this as a paid-for thing in the US only? That makes no sense whatsoever. But then trying to second-guess the BBC on many things uh, is quite difficult. Maybe the BBC and Facebook should get together and understand geopolitical ranges. (laughs) Um, Maybe. Who knows? That's an interesting conference. Now, podcast apps may be buying ads for your podcast in Google search without you knowing. Someone's been buying podcast apps, haven't they, with your name, James? Yes, um, that was a bit weird. So if you do a search for pod news, um, particularly if you're in the US, but also if you're in the UK and a few other countries, then you will see Acast advertising there saying you can listen to pod news in Acast, which is kind of okay. Um, It just leads to a web player. It's not particularly helpful um, to pod news, but still there we are. Um, The podcast app is also advertising. Amazon Music, though, is advertising that um, you can listen to our podcast for just $7.99 a month which is slightly misleading, I think, because um, uh, you can listen to pod news for free, even on Amazon Music. Um, So it's just a bit weird. I mean, it's not against Google's terms. Google can use um, that trademark if they want to, or Google advertisers can. But uh, from my point of view, it's kind of not great to see lots of advertising, uh, particularly advertising that is, uh, could well be a little bit confusing and claim that, you know, podcasts cost um, quite a lot of money when in reality they don't. So, yeah, that's a bit of a weird one. So, OK, apart from it being weird, James, why are they doing it? Well, they're doing it, obviously, because they want to drag as many people to use their app as possible, whether it's Acast or the podcast app or Amazon Music. I mean, Acast is a bit weird. They do have an app, but really, is that really what they want people to use? I I don't really necessarily see that as being the fundamental plan that Acast has. Um, uh, So, yeah, you know, that's probably why they're doing it. and you can well see that, you know, Amazon Music on a wider scale, maybe what they've done is they've basically ingested the entire catalogue of Amazon Music and forgotten to take the podcasts out of Amazon Music um, when they've um, put that particular advertising campaign into Google AdWords. I don't know. But um, however it's working, um, yeah, I'm, I can't really think that I'm particularly happy about it. So you're not planning on retiring then? <laughs> oh, I didn't say that. Um, but I think... Well, I was thinking from the proceeds of all of this advertising revenue that you're getting shared with. Well, uh, yes, but of course, I'm not getting any of the money for that. Uh, It's just purely advertising uh, that goes to Google. 
Um, so I'm not getting any of the money, nor would I be getting any of the money from um, Amazon Music if people ponied up $7.99 or £7.99, which is even worse. Um, So, uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm kind of there thinking, okay, well, fair enough, but, uh, you know, a a heads up would be nice, I think. Mm. Now, they're not the only ones who are starting to put a bit of money around other podcasts. Uh, Eagle-eyed Chris Messina spotted that uh, the desktop version of spotify has now got a little section for sponsors now i think it's a test because it seems that podland news when i looked it up is sponsored by uh, hbo max squarespace casper and smile direct club yes but i don't think we're sponsored by any of those they are not sponsors um and there's also a weird sort of a strange image above which I don't fully understand. It's part of a test, according to TechCrunch. It's a episode sponsors section for podcasts in the app. They are testing it in the US um, with a few different things. But um, yeah, I mean, quite why it says that Casper and Squarespace are supporting this podcast, I really don't know because they clearly aren't, unless those are the ads that Spotify is putting in front of this podcast if you listen on a Spotify free account. Uh, which I, I guess may be, may be the case, in which case, um, hooray, and we love our Casper mattresses. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yes, don't... Um, I tried to uh, see the particular uh, screenshot which you've uh, shared, which will be in our show notes, but um, uh, it's not showing up for uh, people down here, so maybe uh, Spotify being a bit more fair dinkum down here. Who knows? Uh, well, it'll be uh, interesting to see whether... I did ask Chris last night whether we, as the podcast owners will be allowed to opt in for which sponsors we want on our podcast um, or are we going to opt in and have a generic we will place sponsors into you because you're in a vertical so is it us asking for sponsorship or them delivering sponsorship against us well or let's put this the other way uh, and I know the views of both Adam Curry and Dave Jones on the podcast index, but if there was a way that we could highlight our sponsors in the RSS feed, is that something that would be good for podcasting overall? Is there a way of us saying, you know, um, giving a sponsor tag with a link and various other things in our podcast feed? And if you are a good mm. podcast app, you would show those pieces of information in the podcast app. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, what this is, again, is it's, um, it seems to be Spotify doing another proprietary thing, another thing where they're, you know, holding up one finger against RSS and going, well, you know, we, we know better. Um, and I wonder whether it's that. Um, but could you see a future where we were actually able to, just as we can in the Buzzsprout uh, dashboard, say who our sponsors are, um, also be able to um, carry that through into the RSS feed so that it appears properly um, in uh, any participating podcast app? Um, I know that um, you know that uh, many of the people who are working on the new podcast namespace are vehemently anti-advertising. Um, but it might this be a more pragmatic solution to help those podcasters that do take money out of uh, sponsorship as well? Well, let's see. I, it'll be a post-Christmas, I guess, release. Now, your favourite time of the week, James. It's that time. It's Boostergram Corner. Booster, booster, boostergram. Boostergram, boostergram corner. 
you can't get more top 40 than that. It is. It's Booster Graham Corner talking about money. And uh, thank you very much to um, Adam Curry, the podfather, uh, who starts with um, happy birthday to Podland. I'm thankful for the show and both Sam and James on this Thanksgiving. Uh, I believe that Thanksgiving is some sort of American thing. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, 5,000 sats sent using CurioCaster. But he also has a slight criticism for you, Mr. Sethi, doesn't he? Oh, dear. What have I done? Uh, I missed the questions about podcasting 2.0 during the Lisa interview. What's up with that? Yeah, I know, Adam. I actually thought about it and then I thought, you know what? I don't think she's going to say that they're doing anything with podcasting 2.0. And uh, I think it was just going to be a very simple no, we're not doing it. <laughs> this was the, Yes, I should have asked. You're right. This was the uh, interview last week with Lisa Laporte from the Twit Network. Um, which is uh, well worth a listen. And uh, Lisa was kind enough to uh, tweet a link to this podcast. So hello to you if uh, you are a new user because of that particular tweet. Uh, Good of Lisa to have uh, done that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be careful. This is not the podcasting 2.0 podcast. I believe that there is one of those already. Um, And, uh, you know, we need to be, I think, careful not to just dive down that particular rabbit hole. But I think, you know, it is a useful thing, which I will certainly ask uh, every so often when I'm uh, doing that. Uh, Brian of London says, you don't seem to have a funding tag. Mm-hmm. I'm using Castomatic, but the funding button is grey. Brian, uh, I think there's a good reason for that. And the reason for that is that Buzzsprout don't support the funding tag quite yet. Uh, it would be lovely if they did. Um, and um, we will put a, um, a recommendation in that they do support the funding tag. Um, that would be a good thing. But uh, you will find us in all of the usual places, I'm sure. And finally, mere mortals. Thank you, uh, Kyron. Very kind of you to say, James, I try my best. The chat with Adam will come out in about two weeks' time as well. Happy birthday to us, he says, uh, you and James, and you've become a staple of my Fridays. Thank you, Kyron. That's very kind of him talking about um, his uh, interview with Adam Curry, which will be out in a couple of weeks. So thank you very much uh, for all of those uh, boosts and uh, boostograms. If you have a boost button in your podcast app, then hold it down now. And if you don't have a boost button in your podcast app, you should get a better one at podnews.net slash new podcast apps. Now, if I called you a Mr. Beast, James, would you understand anything of that sentence? I have no idea about this Mr. Beast person. You've been uh, reading something from friend of the show, Matt Deegan, have you not? Yeah, I did. I look, and I'll put my hand up and say, like you, I had no idea who Mr. Beast was. But this week, Matt wrote something called What Can Audio Learn From Mr. Beast's Video Success? So I had to obviously shift over to YouTube, have a look. And the guy is unbelievable. He basically creates videos. Uh, This week, he created a video that copied Squid Game, all the games completely. He spent over $2 million on the set alone. He had 456 people come along and they played the games and the winner won $456,000. Uh, And all it was was a 25-minute video. He didn't extend it. He didn't build a series. He didn't 
try and explain this show. He just played it. It was a one-off show and that was it. It sounds like a very good advertisement for uh, not getting the best value out of your content there, but um, maybe maybe I'm being a cynical old media person, I don't know. Well, that is exactly what Matt would call you then, because what Matt was trying to say was that we need to change the way we think. We, you, me, Matt, probably himself, would have extended that out and tried to sweat the equity or the content. Um, but no, this guy's getting over 11 billion views in total. Tech stuff. I'm, I'm quite excited, Sam. For the first time ever, I'm not, because I have no idea what the next sentence I'm reading means. <laughs> Umbral has been updated to version 0.4.9. Yes. Helipad is due to be released this week by Dave Jones. I have... No idea what this is all about, so right. tell me. Umbral is a piece of software that allows you to run your own Bitcoin node. So your own bank in your own house keeps your Bitcoins nice and safe. And of course, SATs that are part of uh, Value for Value for podcasting uh, is part of, of course, is part of Bitcoin. So um, Umbral allows you to do that. What Helipad is, is it gives you a... Um, uh, an overview, if you like. See see what we did there, Helipad overview. Um, Helipad gives you an overview of all of the boosts and boostograms that you have been receiving. Because if you have one of these umbral nodes, as I do, then you can't very easily see who is giving you a boostogram, who is giving you, um, you know, boosts, where this uh, additional cryptocurrency is coming from. And so Helipad is a really simple, straightforward thing that will show boosts and boostograms in real time. Um, it looks very cool. It's at version 0.1.3, which you may guess means that it hasn't quite been released. But Dave Jones in the podcastindex.social today said that he is submitting it to the Umbral App Store tomorrow. So that should mean that it appears in the next version of Umbral whenever that comes out in the next couple of weeks. So I'm very excited because that will mean that I can lower my reliance on the Satoshi Streams uh, thing, which I've been using, and uh, everything can point directly to my own node. Um, I find it very exciting, although I can see, uh, Sam, from your blank expression uh, that uh, you are slightly less excited than I am, but still, there we are. Oh, I'm just trying to think. I have to read something that says how to set up a node now before I even get to setting up an umbral and then a helipad. It just feels very complex to me, but I'm sure it has a lot of value. It does. It's got a lot of value. We should get you, we should get you into this. We should get you into this. Um, I love that fact you're an early adopter, James. You're an early adopter. You, know, you have to play around with these things. You have to, you have to kick them and see what works and what doesn't. Um, and, and talking about kicking them, oh, yes. uh, Clubhouse. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> nice link, James. I like that one. Uh, Business Insider posts an article today uh, inside the rise and fall of Clubhouse, a pandemic poster child of the VC-backed hype now hobbled by drama rooms, unhappy creators, dwindle users and dubious advertisers. Oof. Let's just go for it. Mm, yes, it's saying that daily average users are down 80% since February. So is Clubhouse going to go away? Well, no, is the quick answer. It's got $110 million worth of cash. It's not going to go anywhere particularly quickly. But that is a withering piece from Business Insider. Um, so, uh, yeah, not good to see that about Clubhouse, which to me seems as if it's um, absolutely... I was going to say dying on the vine, but that was... A 
of course, was uh, Twitter's thing, which also died. Um, uh, uh, and talking about dying things that nobody's using, Fireside Chat uh, is enabling streaming of shows to YouTube. So that's exciting. I spotted a change in their terms and conditions, um, which uh, says that you can use the YouTube API. Or you will be able to soon. They're also making transcripts of chats available, which they put in their pages, but you as an ordinary user can't actually see them. They appear in Google search results, but they don't appear if you just look at the web page. So I built a page as a proof of concept, as an educational tool. Um, I've temporarily... Um, hello, lawyers, put up a tool to pull those transcripts out of the pages. So if you just um, uh, copy and paste the URL, then you can actually see um, uh, all of the uh, transcripts that uh, Fireside Chat is uh, hiding away from you. It seems a peculiar thing to do. So that's it, James. So what else has been happening for you in Podland this week? Well, I am on a podcast. Surprise, surprise. It's uh, called VoiceWorks Sound Business. And I sat down with Jim Salverson to talk about the current value in the podcast market. And I apparently made some bold predictions as to what might change in the industry over the next two to three years. It was a couple of weeks ago. I've completely forgotten what I said. Uh, and, they, and they may or may not be true. Uh, well worth a listen, VoiceWorks Sound Business. And also, I would recommend to you a podcast called Before the Bar Opens. It's a podcast about people who make, use and love music. Emma Clark's latest episode interviews Chris Stevens. Now, you have heard Chris Stevens' work because Chris Stevens uh, is the person who who composed the Podland News theme, which you hear at the top and at the bottom of every single episode, and also the music on Pod News's podcast. And he also owns a jingle company in Dallas. Um, it's uh, well worth a listen. Before the bar opens is called that. Now, what's um, uh, how's your week been, Sam? Uh, let's just say it's not been a cracker. Uh, my dog broke her leg. That's all I'll say. Oh, Chasing no. a deer that eventually led to a car hitting her. So, yeah, she's got a broken front leg, but uh, she's mending. Oh, oh she's back home, so it'll, it'll mend. She's young enough. Not a great week for you, Sam. Well, I hope that she gets better soon. And that's it for this week. Please follow Podland in your podcast app and on Twitter at Podland News. You'll find previous shows on the web at www.podland.news. If you want daily news, you should get Pod News. The newsletter is free at podnews.net. The podcast can be found in your podcast app. And all the stories we've discussed on Podland today are in the show notes. And we use chapters too. Our music is from that wonderful man at Ignite Jingles. And we're hosted and sponsored by Budsprout. Keep listening. Thank you.